Well, as our uh, Cactus Campus and our Mountain Valley Campus and then our venue right next door and our chapel across campus all join us for our time in the Word. As many of you know, we're in a uh, series here at our church, uh, a 10-week series, we're in, in week eight, on uh, that we call it I Believe, cat, small i, capital B. And, and it's a very simple series. We're simply looking at the first four chapters of the Gospel of John, and we're noting the things that Jesus brought to this earth when he came to this earth that the Bible says are still with us, us now, things that he brought that help us believe. And you're saying, like what? Well, things like his presence with us, or his reception of us, or his forgiveness of us, or as Rustin taught us last week, his spirit given to us. These are all things that John makes really clear that Jesus brought when he came with him that were designed for you and I to understand so we might have faith and belief. But isn't this just like the Bible? What we're going to see today is that we're at the tail end of chapter 3 is that all of a sudden the tables are going to get turned. And essentially what John is going to do is say, now here's one thing I need from you. Here's one thing that God needs from you. Here's one trait that you need to have if you're ever going to believe. And it's the trait of humility. A topic that many of us are comfortable talking about. It's not all that threatened, but it's a very robust topic. And what you're going to see today is that without humility, and many of you do have a modicum of humility, uh, without humility, you'll never believe. You'll never trust God because without humility, you won't know who you are and you won't know who he is. And so humility really is a precursor to faith. And we want to go a little bit deeper with that today. So Uh, Before we even open up the Bible, let's bow right now and ask God's blessing upon our time. God, thank you for each person here today at our other congregations and venues, that as we gather now as one church uh, in Jesus Christ, that uh, you've brought us here today. I pray that as we open your book now, that you might speak to each one of our minds and our hearts individually, and then uh, to us collectively as a church. And I pray this in Christ's name, and we all say together, Amen. amen. So I grew up with a song, a country song. I wasn't really into country music until Brooks and Dunn, 1990, that type of stuff. Uh, But I grew up with a song back in the 70s that everybody in my generation knew. It was a country song by Mac Davis, and it went like this. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Uh, Last night, we had a lot of younger crowd here, and I'm telling you, like, nobody had heard of that song. They're making me feel old. Because it was a song that in my generation, everybody knew. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. And without trying to be too serious about it, when you think about it, the premise of that song is is essentially the way our world thinks about humility. It's actually a good song. Uh, The song is basically saying that someone who sees themselves as perfect will have a hard time being humble. And and so the key to humility, according to this song, is to realize that you have flaws and that you have failings. And, And this is how most people in the world approach humility. They would argue that it involves seeing yourself as not perfect, seeing yourself as having some flaws, because we all do, and that if you can learn to do this, you'll be more humble. And conversely, if you don't do this, if you buy into the song by Mac Davis and say, I'm perfect in every way, then people are almost going to laugh at you because you're not perfect and and you won't have any room for humility in your life. Uh, People tie humility today 
to this idea of, of just seeing yourself a little bit less than, seeing yourself a little bit less than perfect, and ergo, you will be humble. And, and what we need to realize today, and the reason that that song there is so important, is that the Bible says that's a good start. Uh, the Bible says our world is latched on to a, an aspect of humility, but honestly, it's humility 101 at best. I mean, everybody should see themselves as having some issues. Everybody should see themselves as not being perfect, and therefore, everybody has some humility. But the Bible says when you recognize that, you're just starting down the road of humility. There's a lot more road that God wants you to trek, and the Bible takes us down that road. And so ironically, today as we uh, turn the page into the end of chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, we're going to be challenged to go deeper in our understanding of humility than simply, oh Lord, it's hard to be humble uh, when you're perfect in every way. Uh, we're going to look at the fact that there's an attitude that comes with humility and an action that comes with humility that makes that stuff look like child's play. Uh, we're going to look at humility 201 or 301 uh, here today, and I think you're going to find it helpful. And, and to do this, we're going to take a look at a true account having to do with a guy named John the Baptist, who some of you are familiar with. Now, let's get our bearings straight on the context of this passage that we're going to be looking at today out of John chapter 3, and then we're going to do a deep dive uh, into this attitude and action that God wants for you and for me. So notice with me how this section begins in John chapter 3, verses 22 to 26. It says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John, John the Baptist, also was baptizing at Ainon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, let's notice a few things about the context here so that we're all on the same page as to what's going on here. Uh, obviously here, they're in a little bit of a different setting. Uh, the Gospel of John starts out way in northern Galilee. You can see it on a map here. Here's a map of the Holy Land in Jesus' day. Uh, the Gospel of John starts out way here in northern Galilee in Capernaum and Bethsaida and even Nazareth. And, and yet now it says they went down to the countryside in Judea. And, and so what that means is that they went way south. So picture going from Flagstaff down to Phoenix. And Phoenix is where all the action is, and Jerusalem was where all the action is. But John makes it clear they're not in Jerusalem. They're in the countryside. So most experts say somewhere probably near Jericho here, because it's on the other side, just this side of the Jordan. And you can picture them along that river baptizing people. And by now, John the Baptist, who'd been baptizing people way before Jesus showed up on the scene, is baptizing. And now Jesus, because his ministry is starting, is baptizing and what happens as this whole scene unfolds here, as they're both baptizing, is that John's disciples get a bit jealous. They begin arguing over an unnamed, or with an unnamed Jew over purification. We have no idea really what that argument's about. John never tells us here. Uh, some assume that maybe it was over whether Jesus' baptism was more pure than John's. We don't know. But they're arguing with this unnamed Jew over purification, 
And then John's disciples come to John and they essentially accuse Jesus of not being a team player. They accuse Jesus of hogging all the best recruits. That the people that had been with John are now going with Jesus and they're getting baptized by him and they're going to start following him and we're going to lose players and Jesus isn't sharing very well. That's what they're basically saying to John the Baptist. And again, when you've read John chapter 1 and you know what's really going on here, you're kind of like, well, didn't they get it? Didn't they understand that that was all part of the plan, that John the Baptist had come as a forerunner to point to Jesus? Now he had pointed to Jesus. He baptized him. What do you think is going to happen? That's what someone you and I would say. But John's a little bit more gentle with them and also a little bit more instructive on what humility looks like. Look at how John responds initially. Look at verse 27. Right when they complained to him, it says, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Fascinating response. A, a person can't receive anything unless it's given him from heaven. You've got to believe they're saying, well, okay, what are you getting at? What's the point? And then he goes on to say in the next few verses, I, I already told you guys, I'm not the one to come. I'm the one that was sent beforehand. I'm the one that was to point to Jesus who is the one to come. I'm not the Messiah. He is. John spells that out. And then he even gives them an illustration that you and I can latch on to about a wedding. He says, if you go to a wedding, who's the focus point? The bride and the groom. And so you have a bridegroom and you have a bride, but then you have a best man and a bridesmaid. And the best man's job, John's arguing in the next few verses here, is simply to point to the bridegroom. Not to hog the show, but to make sure that the right person gets the right emphasis. And in a very real way, John the Baptist is showing us humility right before us. He's saying, I know my role in this whole gig. I know my place in this world. I know who's orchestrated this whole thing and where it all comes from. And my role is starting to wane. And that's what he's saying. He's so humble about this. But don't miss the setup statement that allows John the Baptist, I think, to be humble when he says, and he's letting us into his thinking here, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You see, this is the attitude of humility. And for those of you taking notes, here's the attitude. It's all from God. That's how John the Baptist thought. That's what allowed him to be humble. He walked around each moment of each day realizing that everything he was, everything he had, everything that came into his life was from God. And so he didn't need to be threatened by any of this stuff going on around him. And he was trying to teach his disciples this. Hey, dude, the reason I can be the way I am is that everything I have, everything, is from God. A person can't receive anything unless it's given to him from heaven. And so it's kind of like Job thousands of years earlier. You guys remember that story when Job uh, had everything taken away from him? Which would really bum some of us out if that happened to us. And what did Job say? Do you remember his response? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. John the Baptist is saying the same thing here. He, he, he believed that his lot in life, all of his accomplishments, all of his struggles, and he had them, even his role in welcoming the Son of God to earth, was somehow tied up in the sovereignty and providence of God. And that without God in the picture, none of this would be happening and so really, it was more about God than even him. That's what allowed him to be humble. It was an attitude that he had with him. 
Uh, Rick Warren, I think, says it so well in, in a recent blog. I, I, I like this. Warren says that life is not a series of random freak accidents. Life is not totally unplanned. Life is not without meaning. God knows what's going on. <laughs> he says nothing can come into the life of a child of God without God's permission. And then I love how he says it. He says everything is father-filtered. I love that phrase. Everything is father-filtered. Nothing gets past God. A person cannot receive anything unless it is given to him from heaven. God is that much in control of our very lives. I don't want to argue this point too strong, but I think that there's something in this for you and I today. I think there's a lot of room within Christianity today and many church people and even many non-church people to make more room in their minds for this attitude that it's all from God's. Because we really do walk around when we consider our time, talents, and treasures. And I know, we, I know we don't mean to, but we really do walk around thinking, boy, have I done pretty good for myself. <laughs> I mean, I hear Christians actually do that. I mean, just, you know, I've, I've done really well. I sent my kids to a good college, and I, and I experienced good success, and I built this great business, and I now live in Scottsdale, and yada, yada, yada. And, 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 and if I push them and say, well, where did that come from? They'll say, oh, it came from God. I mean, I'd hear that. <laughs> But the reality is, is that the way you talk and the way we talk, I don't think each moment of each day we're saying a person can't receive anything unless it is given to him from heaven. And we wonder why we're not more humble. It really does blow you away when you consider time, talents, and treasures, how the Bible just hammers home that all that's from God. Consider your time and your circumstances. Uh, Paul was at the Oropagus in Athens, Greece, uh, arguing his case before the Stoic philosophers. And, and this is the flow of his argument here. You've got to love this. He says, And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So he's got them right there. You know, God made everybody. And then he says, Having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their very dwelling place. Ooh. You mean he's in control of all of our circumstances? I mean, think about it this way, guys. You're, where you're born, the circumstances of your life, the parents that you've had, the education you got, the job that you have had, the spouse and kids that you've been blessed with, the friends that you like, even the ones you don't, guess what? God says, God says he determined the allotted periods and boundaries. It's all from him. How about your giftedness? Some of you are really good at certain things. We'll get to that list in a minute here. But look what the Bible says about your giftedness and your natural talents. Uh, to one, he gave five talents. To another, he gave two. To another, he gave one. So we all have not been blessed equally. You all understand that, right? That's why you covet what your neighbor has, because you haven't been blessed equally. But the reality is, is that it all came from God. So if you want to blame anybody... You blame him. Uh, Romans 12, 6, having gifts that differ according to what? The grace given to us. Whose grace? God's grace. I, 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 I love this. I mean, again, some of you have really good athletic ability. The guy who gave our announcements earlier, Sean, I mean, he played professional baseball for 10 years, even though it was for the Cubs. Tom, or Sean has good <laughs> athletic ability. Uh, some of you have really sharp analytical minds. Some of you are super creative Others of you have good business acumen. Some of you have good street smarts. Uh, some of you are, have strong relational strengths. Some of you have the kind of temperament that doesn't get rattled easily. And you see, here's the deal. You've had those things all your life, and it's allowed you to have a modicum of achievement and success, 
And you know what God says? It's all from me. All of it. There's no accident. It's all been Father filtered. And again, the key to humility is to recognize that. A person can't receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. we got to stop taking credit for that stuff. And then I don't need to belabor this one, because you guys all know this one, but your money and your possessions, where do you think those came from? Well, I earned it, you see. You see, I went to school, and I did this, and da-da-da. God says differently. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and he's let you have maybe one or two cows out of his cattle on a thousand hills. That's what the psalmist says. Philippians 4.9, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He's just loaned you a little bit. That's why we have to be good stewards of those things. And the list, by the way, goes on and on. I mean, I, I know we only have a certain amount of time, but the Bible says that your children are from God. Children are a heritage from the Lord. He knit them together in their mother's womb. Your spouse is from God. Whether you like her or not, she's from God. Uh, your relationships, all of them, are from God. Even your salvation. Again, some of you said, well, I chose Christ. Well, the Bible says differently. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourself. How do you argue that one? And here's what's tricky about all this. I get it. I've been doing this for a long time. What's tricky about this is while we're going through the motions, it feels like we're the ones making all the decisions. We're the ones making everything happen. We're the ones doing all this work. It's just that, again, God pulls a fast one and says, yeah, it felt like that, but guess what? I'm a lot more in control. I'm a lot more involved in this than you would have any idea And again, how do you make sense of scriptures like not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his will? Not his permission. A lot of people say, well, he permitted it. No, he willed it. Not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his will. Every single hair, Jesus says, on your head are numbered. He's that in control. And the reality is, we call this sovereignty and providence, and it really is important. Because look at it this way. Here's how this really works. You and I are going through life, and we're singing our song. We're making things happen. We're doing our thing. We're singing a great song, and we're going to get to heaven someday if you believe in Jesus. And basically what heaven's going to reveal is all you were doing was opening your mouth. That God was the one really singing the song through you. And all the things that you took credit for and thought you did so well, he's going to say even the energy that you had, all things hold together in Christ, Colossians says, even the energy you have was from him. Which is why you and I can be humble, because there's very little at the end of the day that we can and should take credit for. We're really not the ones singing the song. He is. I know I used this illustration about four years ago. I checked my records, and so some of you remember this, but, uh, and I know it's terrible to say this on a sermon on humility, but this is such a good illustration I came up with four years ago. And, and it really is one of the few illustrations I've ever come up with that, that I didn't read in a book or, you know, read in my, I actually have a database of 20,000 sermon illustrations, and so I, uh, I heard a pastor once say he doesn't have a creative bone in his body, he just steals really well, and that's me. I just steal really well. But this one I didn't steal. This one I actually, it just hit me in a moment of, 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 of brilliance that I don't have very often. And it's from the Andy Griffith Show. How many of you remember the Andy Griffith Show? Raise your hand. Oh, 
I got to tell you, you know, sometimes I'll be flipping channels and I'll look at Two and a Half Men and, you know, A Modern Family and I just think, oh, I just, I need to get out of this muck and mire and go back to the Andy Griffith show. And so I'll tape a bunch of Andy Griffith shows off of MeTV, you know, the retro thing. And, and, and if you don't know the show, I, I mean, it's just a great old family show. You had Opie and Aunt B and Floyd the Barber and, and Otis the Drunk and Ernest T. Bass. And, and, and my favorite, Sheriff Andy Taylor, who was the main star in it. But who was the guy that made everybody laugh? What's his name? Barney. The, the, the deputy sheriff, Barney, played by Don Knotts. And one of my favorite episodes was entitled Barney in the Choir. It was about Barney joining this community choir. Some of you remember this. I showed it a few years ago. And do you remember the setting? He wanted, to, he wanted to sing the lead solo in this community choir. The only problem was he couldn't sing very well. And like some of you, he didn't know that he couldn't sing very well. It all sounded great to him. And Barney was so very sensitive, nobody wanted to offend him. And, and, and so they didn't know what to do until Andy came up with a great idea. And essentially what Andy did is that Andy took a microphone and put it in front of Barney, maybe a microphone just like this, and Andy said to Barney, now, now this is one of those newfangled microphones. And he said, it's so sensitive that you don't need to project your voice at all. All you need to do is open your mouth and it'll pick up the vibrations of your voice and magnify it to the audience and then what Barney didn't know is that Andy had another choir member who was really good, a baritone voice, went behind the stage with a real live mic and was actually singing the song. And Barney had no clue on this. And it's an amazing scene. So let's watch it right now. Look up on your screen.
And I got to tell you that there's a reason that I showed you all three minutes of that clip. And that's that I needed you to feel, and I know all of you caught it, the confidence that Barney had, right? And that's the funniest thing about it, is that he's not even really singing the song, but he thinks he is. And there's all this confidence that he has, and he's so proud of himself. And that's how many of you look to God every day. And he's glad that you have the confidence. He's glad that you're singing the song. He's glad that you're up there performing and doing what you do. It's just that he says there's more going on behind the scenes than you realize. There's more of me in that song than you have any clue of. Which is why that's such an amazing illustration of how God works with us. You see, we experience success in life. We secure a good job. We get a degree. We find a good hobby. We land a great business deal. We end up in a great marriage. Our kids turn out semi-good. And, and though all the while, it felt like we were singing the song, and in some ways we were. Like Barney, we feel confident and successful, and yet behind the scenes, many times unbeknownst to us, God is truly the one making it happen. Again, theologians have a name for this. It's the sovereignty and providence of God, that it all goes back to him. He is that much in control. And again, I know what some people respond to this with. They say, well, Jamie, didn't I do anything? I mean, doesn't my free will play a role in this? And again, I'm not going to get into that too deeply today, but, but let me just say this. It's a mystery. It really is. I mean, whether you come from a more Reformed Calvinist perspective or, or what we call a holiness Arminian perspective, the reality is, is that both ends of that end in mystery. I tend to choose one side or the other because of my biblical leanings and, and where the mystery ends up in. But at the end of the day, the reality is, is that the Bible says, yes, we need to keep using our will in making decisions and serving God. And I'm going to give you some action steps here in a minute and all that. It's just that here's the key. At the end of the day, after you has used your will, the Bible says it was really God doing it through you. And that if you fail to recognize that, you will be as proud and arrogant as a peacock. And the reality is, is that God doesn't want that in you or me. Uh, Paul the Apostle wrestled with this. I, I shared this at a talk I gave uh, a week ago to a bunch of graduating college students. Uh, and I was telling them to work hard. And I said, but, but as you work hard, don't forget who it is working through you. Because Paul the Apostle says this. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not me, but the grace of God that is in me. I, I, boy, I, I see Paul wrestling here, don't you? With essentially saying, well, well, I am what I am because of the grace of God, and he's given me my gifts and my talents, and he saved me and all this. But you know what? When it comes to those slackers down the road, I work harder than any of them. And the success I had came because I worked really hard in planting all these churches and getting the gospel out. But then he catches himself and he says, oh, but it wasn't really I. It was God's grace that was with me. See, it's okay to feel the mystery in all of this, but at the end of the day, are you willing to say, but it was really his grace that was with me? Because if you're not, you're going to take credit for everything. You're going to read your own press releases and think that you're something that you're not. And God says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. And it's the attitude of humility. And I think there's a lot of room 
for Christians to have this in the way that we think. It's critical that we do. And now, right on the coattails of this attitude that John the Baptist demonstrates here, there's a corresponding action. And I mean right following this attitude. The two go together. And the action is found in verse 30 as John wraps up his words here. John the Baptist wraps up his words to his disciples. And this is what he says in verse 30. He says, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Interesting statement. Some commentators think one of the most profound statements in all of the Gospel of John, that he must increase and I must decrease. So, at the very least, we know John didn't just think in a certain way when it came to his humility. He also learned to act in a certain way, this decreasing and increasing. So I say it like this, that the action of humility is about you and I learning about God's increase to our or my decrease. That's the action of humility. I want you to think about John the Baptist for a minute here. And this only makes sense, but do we all understand that after this interchange with John and his disciples, after this interchange with baptism, with Jesus' disciples baptizing and John baptizing, that right after this we know that John started to close up shop so that Jesus could open, if you will, his shop. But we know that John started baptizing less. Do you know why? Because they were all going to Jesus. <laughs> we know that John started losing followers. You know why? Because he wanted them to follow Jesus. And he was for that. He wasn't going, oh gosh, this is kind of hard. No, he's like, this is why I came. This is the purpose here. And part of humility is realizing our purpose and realizing that there are some action steps that we need to take in life. Now, don't miss this. To decrease ourselves in order that God might be increased. See, we live in a world and culture today in which it's all about making your own reputation, making your own success, all these things. And again, I'm not arguing that that's all bad. I'm just saying in point one, give credit where credit is due. It's more about God than you. And then in point two here, be very careful with that because as Bill Hybels wrote about years ago, we live in an upwardly mobile world in which God calls us to strive to be downwardly mobile. And we'll get to what that means in a minute, downwardly mobile. But the reality is, is that humility must have an action to it. And John the Baptist shows us his action. And before I do apply this, because I'm going to give you some action steps on how we can be more humble in our actions on a daily basis, I want you to know, and this is really important, guys, really important to see, that John the Baptist wasn't just humble before Jesus. He didn't just increase Jesus and decrease himself. There's evidence here that he was also humble before others. In other words, he's saying to his disciples, we must decrease and he must increase. And then he looked at Jesus' disciples and realized these guys were going to now become the big 12. And so he was humble even before them. And you're saying, why is that important? Here's why this is important. And this is so, so relevant for some of us here today. <laughs> I think one of the biggest problems with Christians and humility today, and tell me if this isn't true, is that most Christians today recognize that God is bigger than them. <laughs> They recognize that God is greater than them. They recognize God is God and we are not. So in the pecking order, it goes God and then them. So they're humble before God. Uh, But then have you noticed that many Christians then view others as lower than them? Even others within the church. I I, I see this happen all the time. I'm not even sure some of us mean to do it. It's just that, you know, doggone it, we've got our act together. 
you know, and, and we've been at this thing for like 30, 40 years, and, you know, we're doing pretty well, and I know the Bible really well, and da-da-da-da, and before you know it, you're looking at somebody else, and without even meaning to, you're like, well, can, can I help you get your act together? Because obviously your life is a pathetic mess. Mine used to be, and it's not anymore, and you see, I, I got my act together, and, and, and let me ask you, what do you think people feel from you? When, when, when you do that. It, it looks like this. I mean, this is the way that it looks. Uh, you got God here, self here, and others here. <laughs> and, and I know way too many Christians that think like this and function like this. And though I'm going to blow it out of the water in a minute here theologically, because really this is not true, um, the question we have to ask, is that really humi- humility? And, and I would simply say this, kind of. That's the most fair I can be. I mean, you're humble before God, it's just that you're not humble before others, and if you are, it's only a humbleness that you say, you know, you come up to others and say, I am so humble before God, and you're a mess. I mean, that's the message that we give to people. And, and I think it needs to look more like this, and this is what I think John the Baptist did, is you have God here, yourself here, and others with you in that, and that is true humility. I run a risk here in this illustration, but I... <laughs> I, I please try to hear it in, the, in light of how it is. You know, uh, people come to me quite often and say, oh, Jamie, you're so authentic, and you're, you, you, you teach and preach like you're just one of us, and that's your great strength, and you really, you know, I, I like that about you. And I say, well, thank you, and praise the Lord, and I'm, I'm glad that that relates to you. And, um, you know, one of the ways that I can do that, because I know that not all pastors think that way, is that I really do feel like one of you. <laughs> I'm human. Uh, uh, the Bible says that Elijah was a man just like us. Uh, Paul the Apostle said toward the tail end of his life that he was the chief of sinners. Present tense, I am the chief of sinners. Somebody once said the closer you get to the flame, uh, meaning Christ, the closer you get to the flame, the more light it sheds on who you really are and what a schmuck you really are. And so I, I get that. And, and so here's where the trick comes in, is that if I'm not careful, and again, take this in the right light, you know, Christians have all these behaviors that we kind of elevate to, hey, these behaviors are more important than these behaviors. And, and so in the church, you know, if you're in adultery or drunkenness or, or gambling or, you know, something, I mean, we, we kind of elevate those as to those are really bad things and you shouldn't do those. And, and so, you know, for me, I'm, I'm not in an adulterous affair, never have been. Uh, I, I, I don't gamble. I don't even go to casinos and I, I don't get drunk. Last time I got drunk was when I was in college and and I told you guys about that, and so I, I, I don't do those things, and, and I know some of you do, and you're stuck in those things, and even pornography and things like that. I, I don't, um, and if I'm not careful, that could make me think I'm better than you, right? Like I could sit there and say, well, obviously these pathetic people need my help, but you see, here's what keeps it more like this, is that I'm married, and so because I'm married, you see where I'm going with this? <laughs> 30 years almost, my wife and I have the kind of relationship, and it's just not about marriage, I also have children, in which there are things about me you don't see, but I see. And I thank God that I see them. Let me ask you, in God's sight, which is a worse sin, that you got hammered last night or that your pastor is awfully stubborn and impatient? That after 25 years of being married to his lovely wife, He can still pick a fight with her, not back down, win the day and the fight, even though he's so wrong, make her cry as she goes to sleep and feel so justified in it. Which is worse? The fact that you're getting hammered at a bar or that? I would argue neither are godly. 
But the point is, and by the way, I haven't done that in a long time, made Kim cry, but I did at some point. <laughs> the point is, is that I see them as the same. Uh, James says it this way, that if you break one part of the law, you're guilty for breaking all of it. Again, it's the recipe for humility. I don't wake up every day, as I've told you guys, and say, I'm the pastor of a megachurch, and I get to help all these pathetic people get their lives together and all that. I just don't think like that. I wake up, and honestly, I say to myself, I say to God, I try to talk to him first and say, God, thank you for saving my soul. Thank you that 30 years ago you saved me and called me into this life. Thank you that overnight when I had those dreams that weren't very flowery dreams that Jeremiah says that your mercies are not new every morning, that you forgive me, that I can start this day with a clean slate. Thank you that you love me. I submit my life to you and I want to make this day count. That, that's how I think when I wake up. And, and if I thought any other way, I, I just, I, I'm not sure that I'd be the man that God wants me to be. And as I go through my day, I confess my sin to God. I'm driving down the... Somebody said to me this week, it was really hilarious. I, a guy who runs a gym that I work out at said to me, you know, I'm, I'm really trying hard when I'm on the freeway. He's a brand new Christian. He's a newer Christian. He says, I'm trying really hard on the freeway. And I'm on the freeway that, you know, somebody cuts me off and I'm trying not to get so angry. And you know what I thought to myself? I didn't say it to him, but I thought to myself, well, I've been trying to do that for 30 years. Good luck. <laughs> 30 years! And I know better! 30 years! And I'm driving down the road and somebody cuts me off and my immediate thought, this is a true story, when Abby, oh bless her heart, when Abby was like, she's now 22, when Abby was like three, she was driving on my lap, I know you're not supposed to do that, we're driving on my lap, driving down the road and somebody cut me off and my daughter looked at them and said, moron. <laughs> and my wife said, I wonder where she learned that. <laughs> the only problem is, I wish I didn't say that nowadays, but some days I do. I've been at that for 30 years. See, do you see the point? I got nothing to be prideful about. I got certain things to be confident about. Why? Because God's singing his song through me. He takes the wretch that I am, and he decides to use a sermon, or he decides to use the leadership gifts he's given me, or he decides to, whatever he decides to use. But it's not about me. It's about him. And, and, and I don't have any reason to take credit for that. And that keeps us all on the same playing field. Uh, so what action steps can we take? We're out of time. Uh, three things here I just would like to, to share with you that I do on a regular basis just to, to keep myself in, in an action mode with humility. First, deflect compliments. Just deflect them. And what I mean by that is that, you know, when people, like, I, I say this too often, I know, and it might sound trite, but many times when somebody comes up to me, and I'm now going to blow my cover, but somebody comes up to me like Daryl and say, oh, boy, that sermon really ministered to me. You know what I say right away? I always just say, praise the Lord. You, some of you heard me say it. I'll just say, praise the Lord. And I don't mean it tritely, and it wasn't, I wasn't watching TBN or anything like that. I just say, it just comes off my lips because I learned years ago from actually one of my mentors, a godly man, that every time somebody compliments me, I need to somehow deflect it to God because I got to give credit where credit is due. So, so may, I'm not telling you all to go around this week saying praise the Lord at the office every time somebody compliments you, but, but maybe think it. Maybe think it. Next time you get a compliment, just, just deflect it to God. See what he does with that. Uh, second thing is defer to others. I, I, I think that the Christians don't do a good job uh, of deferring to others. And by that, what I mean is just let's offload things to other people that will bless them. I, I, I'm, in a, I'm in a meeting and one of our young interns might be sitting in observing and it's all the big wigs here at the church. And many times I'll look at the young intern and say, what do you think? If you were in our shoes, what, what, what do you think we should do? 
What does that do? It just brings people in. It, it defers and offloads. I, I think that we need to do that more often. We always think we have the answers, but why can't we offload and defer people? How about this one? Next time you're in conflict and you're about ready to state your case, uh, what if you were to realize that almost all conflict we have at best is 70-30? 70% their fault, 30% your fault. <laughs> at best. It's never 90-10. You always contributed something. What if you deferred to another person and instead of stating your 70% first, you stated your 30% first? See, I think that's a key to a good marriage, by the way. Every time Kim and I argue, I say to myself, okay, I could defend my case or I can try to see her point, admit what I can admit, and then give her my 70%. But after I've done that. See, I think deferring to others really works. It, it's humble. And then lastly, demonstrate servanthood. Uh, again, I, I'm not going to belabor this one, but just serve like crazy. One of the things that I loved about the Pew video we showed for you earlier is that the vast majority of people in that video have day jobs. Uh, one of the guys, Maddie, our, our security guy, I, well, Maddie doesn't really have a day job anymore, but Maddie does uh, have a life. And his life is not to go to church in the hot weather and, and load heavy pews and drive 200 miles to an Indian reservation. Uh, but life is about servanthood. Life is about doing whatever we can to serve others. And, and in that video, we, we saw that. People went the extra mile. Where are you going the extra mile to serve those around you? Uh, just three little action steps that we can all do uh, to, 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 to add humility to our lives. If I had to rewrite the title to Mac Davis's song today, I'd entitle it this way. It'd be way too long of a title, but this is what I would say. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you think you're the one making it all happen and you're constantly increasing yourself. Because the Bible says that he's the one making it all happen and that life is about decreasing you so that he might increase and others might know him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word and this amazing servant of yours, John the Baptist. I pray, God, that as we give thought to our lives, and the content of our lives here today, and even our character, that, God, we might be drawn more toward this robust view of humility, that we would go beyond this idea that humility is just about admitting that you have some faults, because we all know that, but that, Lord, we might give cogent thought to what it means when it says that a person cannot receive anything unless it is given to him by you, by heaven, and that, Lord, you must increase and we must decrease. God, may this attitude and action permeate our very lives and might you be honored and might our faith be built. And we pray this in Christ's name and we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day. Amen.